0: Today on Government Matters, the new normal for federal office space. Senator Ben Cardin of Maryland says it's time to rethink where feds work. The fifth anniversary of the Defense Innovation Unit. Its director, Mike Brown, reviews the first five and previews the next five. And the number one story of the week the final word on the OPM GSA merger. Two of the authors tell you what they found on Government Matters. It starts right now. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching the weekend edition of Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. The Department of Agriculture will consider new telework policies that expand employee access to remote work even after the pandemic's over. It's one of several agencies looking at telework policies in light of the virus, and it could have big implications for how much office space the government needs in the future. Maryland Democratic Senator Ben Cardin's proposing a new look at how the government gets and uses office space. Senator Cardin, welcome. It's good to talk to you. What do you think the uh, office space footprint of the federal government could or should look like after the pandemic?
1: Well, Francis, first of all, it's good to be with you. And let me thank our federal workforce. Uh, they're the frontline workers, and they have really stepped up during COVID-19 to serve our nation. And I thank them. They put their own health at risk and they did what was necessary to carry out essential functions. But we also know that we can be much more efficient on the use of telework. We've been urging for a long time, a more direct policy that allow agencies to use telework more efficiently for their workforce. So we expect coming out of COVID-19 where we've been able to demonstrate how telework works, that we will be seeing a more enlightened policy in agencies on the use of telework. That certainly will affect the footprint but we don't think it would have a dramatic impact on the the size or needs of federal facilities. We do want federal facilities to be more efficient, more environmentally sensitive, more uh, using green technologies, but we also expect that there'll be more liberal use of uh, telework policies.
0: One of the comments that you made that uh, Federal News Network reported on recently was the idea that this is not just a benefit to the worker, this is a benefit to the provision of the service to the citizen. What have you seen or what have you learned from your constituents over the past year, Senator, that, that indicates that that's the case?
1: Well, you're exactly right. It's so much more convenient for constituents to be able to get services if they don't have to leave their home. So we've seen the advantage of using technology to, to advance the mission of the federal Uh, agencies. So yes, and I I just speak from my own personal example. I've been able to get all around the world a lot faster and and a lot more efficiently. I've been able to get through my state, uh, but a use of technology that I couldn't do before without leaving my office. So I have found that we can be much more efficient in meeting the needs through telework. We save not only the commute time, we also save the, the challenges of bringing various people together. Uh, much more efficiently. So it's, it's a better way to conduct business. Now, it doesn't eliminate the need for personal interaction, but it certainly reduces the inefficiencies of travel. Would you expect to
0: see the layout of federal real estate different uh, in a post-pandemic environment, more space for people, uh, maybe a, a, a move away from the hoteling environments that we've seen uh, become popular over the last five years or so? Or is it just too early to tell Senator what you think that will look like?
1: I I do think you're going to see different configurations we now recognize that uh, there are areas and needs that will occur. That's hard for us to fully predict like a pandemic. So therefore, as it relates to having better spacing, that's something that should be built in to our federal requirements. Having a much better ventilation system, I think you're also going to see as part of us moving forward to protect our federal workforce and provide an environment that can meet the needs of the future.
0: How would how do you propose that we prioritize whether the government should own or lease its space? There's been a lot of discussion over the years about whether the government should be a, a landlord to itself or tenants to private sector companies, those kinds of things. Does that matter or is it more functionality and, and mission delivery in a particular uh, uh, application, sir?
1: Well, Francis, that's a great question. And there are multiple factors that go into whether the government should own or whether the government should lease Uh, certainly leasing gives us much greater flexibility ownership at least directly may be less expensive on the long run but may be more costly on the short run so there are a lot of factors that go into whether we lease or whether we own some of it's a security issue so even if we lease we have to have long-term leases and have to have control of, of the entity a good example of that is we look at the uh, new FBI facilities, we were looking at a campus facility, the government has to have total control over the property. So even if it's on a lease arrangement, it's going to basically be an ownership arrangement.
0: The FBI, uh, the building is a uh, delicate one, I suppose, is the appropriate word to use. You and your, your counterparts in Virginia are trying to uh, get it into their. Uh, jurisdictions the district would like to keep it there are a number of efforts at play there what are the conversations like in not necessarily particularly in the fbi case but in a in an issue like this because those might come up over the next uh, several years as agencies think about where they need to be and and where they should be where where and where it's reasonable for them to be from a cost perspective
1: Well, I think the issue concerning the FBI ran into an obstacle because of one person, and that was the person who occupied the White House, who wanted to keep the the FBI for uh, personal reasons on Pennsylvania Avenue. Every study that's been done shows that the security needs of the FBI needs a campus-type facility that cannot be accommodated in the Hoover Building. So I don't think there's much disagreement, that we need a campus-type facility for the purposes of its uh, security concerns, as well as bringing together the critical mass necessary to carry out the critical function of the FBI. You're correct. There is competition between Virginia and Maryland. Uh, we, uh, we're very bullish on Maryland. We think Prince George's County is the right location for that facility. and We have all of our stakeholders in Maryland supporting that decision. Uh, we hope we can put that back on track now that uh, President Trump is no longer in the White House.
0: Uh, Senator Cardin, we have about 30 seconds left. Uh, legislatively, are there things that you and your
1: colleagues can do regarding the federal footprint overall? Oh, absolutely. Uh, we, we're the policymakers of the government. We can certainly work with policies that uh, deal with the, the size of the federal p- footprint, the, uh, the commitment to our environment, uh, and our commitment to the safety of our workforce. All that can be built into federal policies.
0: Senator Cardin, thanks very much for joining me today. I appreciate your time, sir.
1: My pleasure. Thank you.
0: Up next, the Defense Innovation Unit hits the five-year mark. Straight ahead on Government Matters, a review of the first five and a preview of the next five. You're watching ABC7. Welcome back. The Defense Innovation Unit is five years old now. Forty percent of the office's contracts have made it to production in its first five years. Mike Brown is director of the Defense Innovation Unit at the Department of Defense. Mike, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. Congratulations on your first five years. What stands out to you as the most important contribution that you and your team have made to the Defense Department in its first five years?
2: Well, thanks, Francis. Uh, It's great to be here. So thank you for having me. You know, I think you'd have to say that uh, DIU, we started as an experiment that Ash Carter formed five years ago, is really working. Uh, So what stands out to me is that we've scaled this. Not only have we implemented it successfully, but we've scaled this operation. Uh, And you can see that in our most recent annual report. We started a record number of projects uh, last year, 23, that was up 35%. We received almost a thousand proposals from commercial companies to bring their solutions into the Department of Defense, thereby saving taxpayers dollars because uh, those are commercial solutions, much less expensive than something that's custom. And those came pretty broadly across the US from 46 different states. And most importantly, 11 solutions or what we call prototypes were transitioned to the military. So that represents new capability from new vendors. That was up 22% year over year. And in fact, over our five-year history, we've introduced 70 new suppliers to the Defense Department.
0: I would suggest as well, Mike, that one of the most important contributions DIU has made is driving culture change all across the department because we're seeing other organizations inside DOD taking the, the techniques that you and your colleagues use and applying them in their own situations. Has that been intentional? Was that one of the original... Uh, goals that Secretary Carter laid out when he stood up DIUX originally, or was that just a residual effect, do you think?
2: I think you'd have to say that's a bit of serendipity, and I think it's a wonderful thing. Uh, It's really gonna be important as budgets become tighter at the Defense Department over the next several years for us to take advantage of commercial technology. Not only is uh, more of the modernization priorities that we need going forward, commercial, things like AI, autonomous systems, cyber areas like that, But again, when we use these commercial solutions, we save taxpayer dollars. And I think that's gonna be critical so that we can save uh, Defense Department dollars for those technologies, the Defense Department in turn, needs to develop on its own, things like uh, hypersonics or directed energy.
0: You mentioned your annual report. We have a link to it at govmatters.tv resources. It lays out, I think, uh, eloquently what you've accomplished in the first five years and not just uh, on an annual basis. What do the next five years look like, Mike? Is it just a matter of scaling what you've laid out, uh, what you've already done, or do you want to go to places where DIU has not gone before?
2: I think a little bit of, uh, of all of those. Uh, certainly we want to scale what we've uh, been able to do a little bit further. Uh, we'd like to see that transition rate uh, increased. We've been able to translate 35% of the projects that we started uh, finding, way, finding their way to a finished solution. This past year, we increased that to 43% and we see no reason why that can't be 50 or 60%. So we're working on the types of things that will allow us to increase that transition rate and deliver more capability to war fighters. One of the other areas we're thinking about is how can we avoid that uh, dod created valley of death when a successful vendor gets a prototype that's proven in a military application but then we don't have the funds for it because as uh, as everyone listening will know it takes two years to program a dollar of def- and the defense department meaning we have to start two years before we're going to spend that dollar thinking about where it's going to be spent there's some interesting ideas uh, afloat right now that would uh, shorten that amount of time so that for these innovation projects that are ready to be scaled, we could move a lot quicker on the budget front.
0: What was what will have to happen to do that? Do you need permission from Congress? Do you need policy changes inside the Pentagon? What do you need to accomplish that, Mike?
2: A little bit of both. I think uh, as the department thinks about uh, innovation, uh, how can we move a little bit quicker and be sensitive to this issue? But yes, we'll need some help from Congress, uh, both authorizers and appropriators. And fortunately, there's some discussion that's happening now Uh, across both of those sets of folks, uh, authorizers and appropriators provide something that would allow us to scale successful innovations more quickly.
0: Given the discussion uh, here in Washington about the overall size of the Defense Department budget and the expectation that it will probably either hold steady or get smaller in coming years, How much of what you're talking about, how much of what you wanna accomplish in say the next five years is budget sensitive and how much of it is just dependent on continuing to demonstrate results?
2: Well, I think we need to work on both. We need to improve our own execution. As I mentioned, we're increasing our transition rate. We're deepening relationships across DOD to make sure that we're working on some of the most important problems. We're even working across the interagency. Now, uh, we have relationships with several groups within the Department of Homeland Security, Uh, Coast Guard, uh, the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency at DHS, NASA. So we think there's a lot of opportunity to work some projects that that move across government. One of the areas that is budget sensitive for us is a new initiative that we're able to start this year. It's called National Security Innovation Capital. We really believe that uh, there's a need for more hardware vendors uh, for the military. And this gave us a way to start to provide a catalyst for private investment that could come in and support more hardware vendors. Most of the uh, venture capital in our country has moved to support software. We're big fans of that because the U.S. has a comparative advantage globally in software, but there's a need for some more hardware vendors, things like uh, batteries, uh, quantum sensors, components for space. And we'd like to see the U.S. take a leadership role in creating some of those new vendors who would eventually be vendors for DIU projects.
0: Mike Brown, congratulations on the first five and good luck in the next five. Thanks very much for joining me today.
2: Thank you, Francis.
0: You can find a link to DIU's annual report at govmatters.tv resources. Up next, the number one story of the week. The congressional review of the OPM merger is complete straight ahead on Government Matters. Its authors tell you what they found. You're watching ABC 7. Now, the number one story of the week. The review Congress mandated of the merger of the Office of Personnel Management into the General Services Administration is complete. Its authors find that merger wouldn't have solved the problems at OPM, that the Trump administration thought it would. Janet Hale is former Undersecretary for Management at the Department of Homeland Security. She is a Napa fellow. Peter Levine is Senior Research Fellow at the Institute for Defense Analyses, former Acting Deputy Chief Management Officer at the Pentagon. Both are on the team who produced this report. Welcome to both of you, thanks for coming on. Peter, I start with you. How did this team go about conducting the work that it did?
3: Well, first of all, Francis, it's great to see you again and thanks for having us both on. Um, what we, the way that, that NAPA works is we have a study team and a panel. Um, the panel is, is an advisory panel that gives direction Uh, provides advice, shapes the recommendations, shapes the work, but we have a study team. We had a fabulous study team on this case that actually goes out and gathers all the documents, reviews all the documents, the laws, the regulations, interviews everybody you can imagine who has any knowledge of the issue and brings that material back to the panel. So we were able to to approach the issue with an open mind and know that we would have a great fact-finding effort to support our efforts as we went forward.
0: Janet, how did you get to the point that we saw in the headlines all this week, which was, as I mentioned, that your team determined that the merger would not have worked the way the administration thought it might have worked?
4: So as as Peter referenced, there was a lot of documentation, a lot of conversation about what was the role of human capital in government. And I think our number one conclusion, and we got there very quickly, was A merger wasn't the answer. It was really strengthening human capital across the federal enterprise and strengthening OPM's hand in that. And that really was much more forward-looking than back about a proposal that really um, probably wasn't going anywhere anyway, but it was a very futuristic, what does OPM and the rest of the federal government need to do to strengthen human capital.
0: Janet, the the primary (laughs) takeaway that I have from all 23 of these recommendations is that the Office of Personnel Management needs to be more strategic than tactical and that it is highly tactical now. Am I reading that right? And if so, drawing on your management experience in government, Janet, how do we get OPM from where it is today? To the vision that you and your team lay out in this work?
4: You read it absolutely correctly. Uh, first of all, we have to strengthen the vision and the execution of having human capital have a front seat in this government process. We need to have strategic leaders at OPM. We need to have, not dual had it. How many times have we seen the OPM director or acting OPM director be the deputy Director for Management at OMB, we need somebody focused on human capital across the government, and then we need them, as you referenced, to getting out of their compliance-based t- to much more focused, future-looking, value-added, uh, strategic human capital to assist the agencies. Some agencies probably need more help than others. Help, I put in quotes, but. You know, if you look at the large agencies where Peter or I serve, strong human capital organizations, but there may be some smaller ones that need the strategic assistance from OPM. Let's get them into doing the jobs that will benefit all across government and not into the did you dot an I or cross a T right?
0: Peter, one of the recommendations that I thought was most interesting, actually a suite of recommendations, but it revolved around the same theme, was the idea of moving OPM away from the fee-for-service model and toward an appropriated model. Why is that so important in the view of your team?
3: So we're talking, Francis, we're talking about a culture shift here, the culture shift from compliance to assistance. And it's something that I think you and I have talked about in the area of of acquisition, where where you want to shift from the view of, of, of procurement people, how can I make you comply with the rules to have the procurement people have the view? How can I help you achieve your objectives within the rules? We want that same kind of shift for personnel that we've been looking for in the acquisition system for so many years. So, um, involved in it, one way to do that is to delegate more to the to the agencies. Um, and OPM has a lot of authority to do that already. They may, may need to get more authority from Congress to, to delegate to the agency, but there's a lot they can do within the authority they already have. Um, and then they need to take a more strategic view of compliance. Instead of looking at compliance on a case-by-case basis um, and trying to review individual transactions, they they ought to be taking a more risk-based approach and looking at, um, at uh agencies as on, a, on a holistic basis, not transaction by transaction, but is your program something that is working in a way that is consistent with the merit system principles? If so, we can let you run with that. If we see problems, then we'll, then we'll come in and try to work with you to fix it. But we're not going to try to run the system from the center on a day-to-day basis.
0: Janet, we have a little bit more than a minute left. I wonder how much of the onus based on these recommendations is on the Biden administration to make changes at OPM and how much of the onus is on Congress to give this or some future administration the latitude to do what you and your colleagues are suggesting?
4: My my answer is that it's both ends of Pennsylvania Avenue. We need strong leadership at OPM, and we need Congress to be sure that they're giving them the tools and the resources that they need
3: to accomplish the mission.
0: Peter, a final thought from you. What would you like to see happen first among your recommendations moving forward?
3: I think that that it's it's the culture shift that we're looking for. It's great that we've got a new leader coming in. I'd like to see that new leader not be double-hatted with OMB, and I'd like to see that new leader occupy the the office for the entire term. Uh, We've had too much turnover in that office. We really need steady leadership to rebuild and reinvigorate OPM in the model that we're talking about.
0: Peter Levine, Janet Hale, thanks very much. Congratulations to you and your team on this work.
3: Thank you. Thank you, Francis.
0: You can find a link to that Napa report on OPM at govmatters.tv resources. And don't forget, if you miss an episode of the program, it's on our website, too. You get a preview of every show when you sign up for our daily program guide. You just text govmatters to the number 58671. I'm back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at eight and eleven on WJLA twenty four seven News, and next Sunday morning at ten thirty on ABC seven to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Cherise Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Hadden.